You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good evening. If you would turn your Bible to Genesis 18, we're going to be looking at the first 15 verses tonight of Genesis 18. It's been a wonderful day. We had a tremendous BPs, MVPs. We had a great Discover Lakeview class. Wonderful uh, new perspective members in there. Good spirit. And the Lord is doing a good thing here. And we're grateful for that. And let's ask him to give us grace to finish uh, this day off well. Father of mercy, thank you. That uh, indeed one of the great disciplines is just meditating on the reality of being known and loved by you as we know you in the Son and by the Spirit of the Son. And Father, even a passage in Genesis 18 can teach us that. And we pray for that tonight as we consider a very important passage in redemptive history. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we read in Psalm 27 earlier, uh, the psalmist David says, be strong, let your heart take courage, and wait on the Lord. Uh, What he's saying there is it takes strength, a strength that we don't have natively. We we need divine resources to have that strength, and and it takes courage to, to wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is one of the hardest disciplines, and it is a discipline that God has entrusted to us, one of the hardest disciplines of the Christian life. So I was converted this month, 32 years ago. I was converted, and not everyone knows the day and the time, but I do. I was converted on August the 29th of 1991, and almost immediately, virtually immediately, I sensed a call to the gospel ministry. Now, I was a graduate assistant football coach, and I was on that track, and and that is a noble track. Uh, Certainly sports, the sports world needs Christian coaches, And, and I was now a new Christian, and I was on the track, but I sensed that God was calling me uh, to invest the best hours of my day and life to, to learning the scriptures, studying the scriptures, and to teach others. And yet, I was not ready. The reality was that when I went back to my apartment the night after I was saved, that night I was saved, I didn't even have a complete Bible. I had a children's Bible that I had been given when I was a kid. It didn't even have all the books of the Bible in it because they'd been torn out through the years. I didn't read my Bible. I had no desire to read my Bible. It was just boring, um, you know, a boring book to me. And and all of a sudden, I had this new desire to learn it. And yet, I had to go buy a Bible in order to do that. But it would have been um, perhaps uh, a very foolish thing to immediately go into ministry. It would have been because I didn't know anything. And so the Lord took me through an eight-year process of waiting. Um, I, I, was, uh, I worked at a Christian orphanage, and I worked in sales. Um, and what's remarkable is 
It was eight years to the day, August 29th, 1999, that I began my pastoral internship here at Lakeview. I'd been saved eight years to the day. Was that incidental, just a, just a, a coincidence that I started my internship on the very day that I'd been saved eight years later? Perhaps. But I tend to think that God ordained that very day to drive home to me that those eight years of waiting were not a waste, that they were divinely appointed. And I've had to wait since then as it took many years to go through seminary and to prepare. And, and sometimes we wait for things we don't even know we're waiting for. And so I was in Louisville for 19 years waiting, not even knowing I was waiting for the call to come to Lakeview. But all of that was the, the preparation for the time when God would call me. Now, by the way, I, well, for one, I wasn't ready. Uh, secondly, Heather wasn't ready, given her career. And we hadn't even met until 1998. She wasn't ready. And, and as a result, if I hadn't waited, not only would I not been adequately prepared, I, I wouldn't have met Heather. I wouldn't even have my five children, uh, the youth choir would have been smaller tonight. <laughs> I needed to, to mature, and there, there were so many other reasons that I had to wait, many of them beyond anything I could understand. God is accomplishing a million things by every call to wait, and we need to believe him for that and trust him for that. Now, what does it mean to wait? I love what Paul Tripp says. Living through the moments when you do not understand what God is doing and you have no power to change your circumstances for the better. That's what it means to wait. Now, the text doesn't explicitly tell us why Abraham and Sarah are called to wait. But being the fact that they are examples to us, it stands to reason that the they have to wait for similar reasons that we have to wait while recognizing there were certain, certain unique circumstances behind their waiting as well. Let me just give you a few reasons why we have to wait. For one, we live in a fallen world, and because we live in a fallen world, things don't operate the way they used to before the fall. That's one of the things we have to wait. Things just don't work as efficiently and smoothly as they should. Something changed when sin entered the world. Second, because God is sovereign. That's a reason we have to wait. We aren't writing our own stories. We don't live in the center of our universe, even though we think we do sometimes. That place is occupied by El Shaddai, the name that was revealed in Genesis 17. Waiting, therefore, is not a sign that your world is out of control. It's just the opposite. It's a sign that your world is under the wise control of El Shaddai. Third reason we have to wait, because God is a God of grace. Waiting on the Lord is one of God's powerful tools of grace. He doesn't just give you grace for the wait. He certainly does that. The weight itself is a gift of grace. Because what God is doing in the waiting, among many things, He is rescuing you from your delusion 
that you think you're in control of things. He is rescuing, rescuing you from your bondage to your own plan to control your circumstances. A fourth reason we have to wait is to teach us about God himself. We've learned in this narrative that God has revealed himself to Abraham and Sarah in some impossible circumstances as El Shaddai. If he had come to them much earlier when they were biologically able to have children, that name would have meant nothing. El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty, sovereign, omnipotent one. But in their circumstances where they have no control and it's an impossible situation, El Shaddai means everything. That's one of the reasons we have to wait, to teach us about God. There are many things you can't learn about God by merely studying a theology book. You have to be tested on it. So it's like a, an athlete can watch film till his eyeballs fall out, but you have to get into the scrimmage. You have to get into the drills to really learn the game. In this case, we have to come to the end of ourselves. And so as we've seen, Abraham and Sarah have had to wait. And as we come to Genesis 18, the wait continues. But in so doing, they are learning something about the lordship of El Shaddai that is critical for them to be the, the parents of the seed by whom the Messiah would come. The first thing we see at the beginning of Genesis 18, and I find this very comforting. I think that you will find this in comforting as well. The Lord does not forget about us in the waiting. Sometimes it feels like he does, but you can't trust your feelings. Look with me in verse one. And the Lord appeared to Abraham, to him. So in Genesis 17, we see that he has circumcised uh, Ishmael and, and, and all of uh, the, the, the men in his camp, his family. And then remember chapter 18 didn't exist when Moses wrote it. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of memory. So Abraham has taken care of business. He's not being passive. He's obeying what God has revealed. And then God reveals himself to him. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of memory as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. This is clearly a theophany. Again, you say, what is a theophany? It is a physical manifestation of God. Now, I happen to believe that Jesus, the son of God rather, his name wasn't Jesus then, is the one who comes in the Old Testament. So in that case, we could call it a Christophany. This is a theophany without question. For one, notice the word appears. The Lord appeared to him. That kind of gives it away. There's other things in the text that give it away as well. Why are these theophanies important? Because they're preparing us for the incarnation. So that when the incarnation comes, we won't be saying, where did that come from? We've been prepared for it through redemptive history. Well, notice in verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... Three men were standing in front of him. Now, some have said this is, the, this is the Trinity. I do not believe that. I believe what we're going to see here is that it is, it is the Lord and two angels. Okay? 
When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. So in in ancient Near Eastern fashion and more importantly, biblical fashion, he's going to show hospitality uh, to these these three persons. And, And here's the question. Do you realize that we are commanded to do that even under the, the, the new covenant. Um, there's, a, there's a book by Rosaria Butterfield that, that warrants reading for all of us. Uh, hospitality comes with a, with a, with a, a house key. Uh, her, her whole premise is that she was at one time a feminist lesbian professor. And she was won to Christ by a couple who showed her hasp- hospitality. Okay. And, and we see this even in 1 Peter 4. Listen, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's interesting that Peter says that. I have a feeling Peter had shown hospitality in his past with some grumbling. Uh, why would he say that? Because it, it's sacrificial to be hospitable. Uh, it's costly and it's inconvenient sometimes to be hospitable. Well, we're seeing this with Abraham. The question is, I wonder how many blessings we miss out on because perhaps we're not as hospitable as what we see mandated in Scripture. In fact, we're not as hospitable as many cultures um, in many countries even today. Uh, So we can learn from the hospitality of, of Abraham here. And he said, oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight... This word, this name is Adonai. That's reserved for God alone uh, in the scriptures. And so there are three visitors there, but he seems to be addressing one. If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So he's he's addressing one that he, he recognizes as Adonai, okay? But there are three there. And then he's going to now uh, direct his attention to all three because we're going to see the second person plural starting in verse 4. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. That's second person plural. While I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And so they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf. This would have been very expensive uh, gift or a meal for this, this um this group tender and good and, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. It's usually thought that when the author of Hebrews, and we don't know who wrote Hebrews, we'll find out uh, in, in glory. But when the author of Hebrews is admonishing the believers to to show hospitality that he was referring to this passage when he says in Hebrews 13 two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. So the writer seems to be saying Abraham didn't know he was entertaining strangers, but I do believe he knew he was entertaining Adonai. He calls him Adonai. So I believe that he recognizes 
Because God has revealed himself before to Abraham, not in a theophany, but he's revealed himself to Abraham. So Abraham knows him. But he perhaps doesn't know these two other uh, persons with Adonai are, are angels. But he certainly is entertaining the Lord. In fact, Jesus will say later, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Uh, the hospitality was literally extended to God. Okay? And this is maybe why Abraham is called, you know, three times, and no one else has called this in the scripture. Three times Abraham is called the friend of God. And many scholars believe it's because of his hospitality that he showed to, to Adonai here uh, in, in Genesis 18. But now God himself comes to Abraham's tent and he has an agenda. God always has an agenda, right? And it's a holy and good agenda. So we've seen the Lord does not forget about us in the waiting. Praise God for that. Remember that when you believe that he's forgotten about you. But the second part of this passage, and we'll see this for the rest of the, uh, our text tonight, the Lord best displays his glorious sovereignty in the waiting. All right, look with me in verse nine. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So scholars say that, that no polite visitor would have dared to call uh, his host's wife by her name. Never mind the fact that he hasn't even introduced her, but they know, his, they know her name. So this is tipping us off and Abraham off that these aren't just simple humans. Uh, they know Sarah. Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. So remember this, Abraham is 100 at this point. Sarah is, is 90. And another signal that this is God is that this Adonai promises to do something that only he can carry out. And, and what's more, he has omniscience. He's all-knowing. Look at me in verse 12. The Lord said, I will, or verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So Adonai is speaking, said, I'm coming here in a year. I mean, down to the month, evidently, down to the week. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, Sarah is not in the conversation. She's eavesdropping. <laughs> and Sarah was listening at the door or at the tent door behind him now Abraham and Sarah were old advanced in years the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah alright but notice in verse 12 so Sarah laughed to herself that is a laugh not of joy it's a laugh of skepticism. Now Hebrews 11 makes it clear that Sarah is a woman of faith. But this is a woman whose faith has not been perfected. Her faith is like ours. 
She laughed, okay? It would be like, you, you've been in this long period of waiting and the struggle that comes with that, and then all of a sudden you're told this great thing's gonna happen and you just, right, right. That, that's what's happening here. She laughed to herself saying, am I, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, and I, I find it interesting that the Lord comes to Abraham instead of going to Sarah. Uh, so you have this order here. Uh, even when Eve sinned against God with Adam, God comes to Adam, all right? There is a, it's not that the, the man is superior to the woman. He's not, but he's the spiritual leader. It's the way God designed it. And men are spiritual leaders, not because men are superior or smarter than, than women. It's just God's order and creation. And he said, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Evidently, you know, with her eavesdropping, um, it, it's clear she has not been convinced with her laughter that, that, that she's ever going to have a child. But here's, here's a remarkable thing here. Her skeptical laughter elicits one of the great truths about God from the word of God. And here it is, verse 14. And I want you to take heed because this is as true today in your circumstances. No matter what you feel, no matter what you see right now, as it was then, is anything too hard for the Lord? The assumed answer is no. There is nothing to, as we teach our children, the children's catechism, God can do all his holy will, right? There's nothing too difficult for him. In fact, the word hard, or maybe your translation is difficult, is a, is a translation from a Hebrew root that means wonderful. I love that. So there's anything too wonderful for the Lord. It, it, is there anything that, too, that provokes too much wonder from the Lord? Psalm 111, verse two, listen to this. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them, full of splendor and majesty is his work. All of his works are full of splendor and majesty, even the works in your life right now. Even the works in your life right now, his works in your life right now, even if they don't taste good right now, they are full of splendor and majesty because his works are wonderful. And all of these actions that, that we're seeing with the long wait, they're wonderful. They're wonderful when viewed from redemptive history, all right? But we sometimes struggle to rest in that, don't we? We have a real hard time resting in that. By the way, that's one of the reasons for corporate worship. And corporate worship reminds us uh, as we gather and center on the word of God, what reality really is. It's not what I'm feeling. It's not what I'm seeing at the moment. But again, her response is encouraging in a, in a kind of sick sense because I realize this great woman of faith is a, is a whole lot more like me um, than, than 
uh, I've even recognized. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. And notice how this section ends. I find it interesting. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. There's an appointed time. How about that? There's an appointed time. It's not just appointed for for certain characters in the scripture. There's an appointed time for every image bearer. All right? That's encouraging. Be encouraged. It may not be your timetable, but praise God for that. It's at the appointed time. The appointed time of the one who's infinite in wisdom. You're not infinite in wisdom. All right? Uh, The one who's infinite in goodness. We're not infinite in goodness. So at the appointed time, he says, I will return about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. Verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. Even after this great promise, she's offended that Adonai would accuse her of laughing, even though we know she laughed. She sounds more like a teenager now than a 90-year-old, doesn't she? For she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. That's Yahweh. You know, Matthew 10, 26 says, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. It truly is one of the most difficult things. And, and I've seen this as a parent. I've seen this as a pastor doing counseling. It, it is absolutely true that one of the hardest things to do is to discern or uncover a lie. Because we, we can only judge from the outside. But it's not hard for the one of whom it is said, is there anything too hard for you? The one who knows our hearts, who discerns our hearts. And, and so after Sarah denies laughing, when she clearly laughed, the passage ends with who getting the last word? Adonai. No, but you did laugh. End of conversation. End of conversation. And it's reminiscent of Judgment Day. It really is. I, I, as I study this passage, it, this almost seems like a, uh, what it will be like in the day of judgment. I think there's going to be a lot of excuses. I think there's going to be a lot of denial uh, on that day. How many will say in that day, I didn't do that. I didn't say that. I didn't laugh. And the last word will be, yes, you did. Yes, you did. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But let me offer you some final points on, and I get this from Paul Tripp. This is not original from me, but I, I find this so encouraging. How to wait productively. And then we'll close out our passage. First of all, remind yourself When you're waiting, you're not alone in the wait. As this passage shows us, and many other passages like it, we'll see this with with, um, some of the other patriarchs. We'll see it with Joseph. Um, We're part of a vast company of image bearers called to wait. 
Moses knew he was called to deliver God's people and he had to wait 40 years before he was ready, didn't he? So, in fact, it's been said that the first 40 years of Moses' life, he, he, he was spent in the Pharaoh's court learning something. And the second 40 years, he spent on the backside of the desert learning um, that he is nothing. <laughs> and then the final 40 years, after 80 years of waiting, Moses had learned God is everything. All right? And so we, we join a vast company of people uh, from Scripture who have to wait. And this teaches us that waiting is not an interruption in God's plan. It is God's plan. There's no one that doesn't have to wait in the Scriptures. I mean, David is anointed king, and the next 10 to 13 years of his life, he spends in the caves. Why? God was preparing him to be a king. Secondly, we need to realize that waiting is not passive, it's active. Usually we think about waiting on the Lord like waiting at a doctor's office, all right? You know, I was a pharmaceutical rep and I did a lot of waiting in the doctor's office. Uh, I'd find the, the, these magazines like a ladies home journal, <laughs> Uh, that were, were three years old and, and I, I read everything in the doctor's office and that was a lot of wasted time I felt. But this is not the way it is with waiting on the Lord. Uh, our waiting is purposeful. God is meticulously providential in our waiting. And, and in the waiting, God, Abraham has learned that he is El Shaddai. And he responded in faith to El Shaddai, right? By, by circumcision at, at, an, at an adult and an elderly age. Abraham's faith is getting stronger in the waiting. And as the father of a multitude of nations, it would require that. Third, and this is countercultural, uh, as we wait, Paul Tripp says we need to celebrate how little control we have in the waiting. He says, playing the fourth person of the Trinity is not only draining, it's futile. It, it, it's fruitless. He says, so waiting should be a relief. In the waiting, there's nothing you can do. Just seek God's face, be God's man, be God's woman, and know the world is being ruled by El Shaddai. Fourth, as you wait, celebrate God's commitment to his work of grace. God has not and will not forsake the process of grace in your life. Again, waiting oftentimes is not as much about what you are waiting for as as much about what you're becoming as you wait, all right? And so, Tripp says, in order, um, God works this grace in order to deliver to you um, the kind of character that you need for what you are waiting for. Maybe it's waiting for a spouse, all right? Just assume if that spouse hasn't come your way yet, you're not ready for it, the spouse, all right? And so, in the waiting, become God's man or become God's woman. 
I, t- I used to tell students, uh, I, I taught more f- male students than female because I taught preaching classes, also taught theology. But I, I, w- I would tell these guys, if you want a Proverbs 31 lady, you've got to be a Proverbs 1 to 30 man. So just become that man in the waiting. Fourth, or fifth, count your blessings. Count your blessings, name them one by one. There's an old song. And we sing it every week, Basin Baptist Church. What that does is helps you overcome grumbling and complaining and discontentment in the waiting. You have far more reasons to to, to, to thank the Lord and praise the Lord than you have to complain. Sixth, finally, long for eternity. Waiting reminds us that we live between the already and the not yet. Jesus has secured our eternity. As we sang, we're almost home, but we're not home yet. And so, until we are home, waiting is meant to produce in us a God-honoring dissatisfaction with the things of this world. And it's intended to make you long for that other world, all right? That Jesus has inaugurated spiritually, but one day he will consummate materially and physically. With all that said, yes, Abraham and and Sarah teaches us a great deal about the fruitfulness of waiting. But their waiting is one of a kind. As God teaches them that Isaac will be the product of omnipotence, the product of the God who is all-powerful. It points us to the ultimate son that would come from the fruit of their waiting. So when the angel came to Mary, and we know this from Luke chapter 1, He told her not only that her barren cousin Elizabeth would conceive a son, but that the Holy Spirit would overshadow Mary and her conception would be a virgin conception. She would bear a son. And here comes these words, and I think it's straight from Genesis 18, Luke 137, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Luke 1 tells us, his name shall be called Jesus, the Son of God. And that is good news for us all. Why? Because in the day of judgment, as we saw with Sarah, it will be God who has the last word. We may say with Sarah, I didn't do that. You're accusing me of this. I really didn't do that. And he will say, but you did. But you did. But it won't be the final word. His final word will be, but my son, my son paid your sin debt in full. Your sins are forgiven. Paid for by the seed of Abraham. And Sarah, the one that they waited for. It's a word for us tonight. As Adam and the musicians come forward, 
Maybe you're just in that season of waiting. You don't have to walk this aisle. You can. You can pray at the altar. You can pray in your seat. But I would venture to say the majority, if not all of you, are in a waiting period for something. And just pray right now as we sing that God would give you the grace to trust in El Shaddai. There is nothing too difficult for him. He is going to do his holy will for you. And what is glorifying to him is actually good for you. You just need to hold on tight and buckle your seatbelt and trust him. He's got something beautiful in store. But maybe you recognize tonight that you've never met the one in whom Isaac points, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can that tonight. You can know him. You can know him in a saving way. All you have to do is repent of your sins and come to him on his terms and say, I am a sinner. You died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that in you, my sins are forgiven. Won't you trust the son tonight as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.